Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Uh, would you please open up your Bibles to 1 John? And Chad will be reading. First John chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses uh, 1 through 4. So First John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was, with, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. morning. Thank you for reading and for leading us this morning. Yeah, let's get right into it. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for bringing us here. Thank you for the strength in our hearts and minds and bodies and the desire to grow in our faith. And we thank you as we start this new study this morning in First John. We pray that you will Use it to, uh, to help us grow, just like uh, Paul just prayed to build, build us up in our faith, Lord Jesus. It's to you we look now. We pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. This we ask in the name of our rock and our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen. The story is told of a man who became stranded on a deserted island. And he lived there all by himself for a long time. But then one day he was rescued. A ship happened to be sailing by, and they saw him on the beach, and they stopped. The captain himself went ashore to meet the castaway. And when he did, he noticed the man had built three huts there on the beach. He said to the, to the man, he said, what's this first hut right here? And the man said, oh, that's my house. That's where I live and eat and sleep. And the captain pointed to the second hut. He said, how about this second hut over here? What's that about? And the man said very proudly, he said, well, that's my church. That's where I go to worship and praise God and pray. And he's just helped me so much here on the island. That's great, said the captain. Well, uh, he pointed over at the third hut. He said, how about that one over there? What's that hut for? And the man rolled his eyes. He said, oh, that, that's the church I used to go to. The story's kind of funny, but the reality is, is really serious. It's actually all too serious. And uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I would suspect if I did, many people's hands would go in the air if I were to ask you if you've ever uh, personally witnessed, not just from afar, but personally witnessed some kind of division 
right? Some kind of division between churches, division within churches, division between Christians in some form or another. Many of us have, have seen that. And the reason I start there, the reason I start with division between Christians is that a lot of scholars believe that division is a big reason 1 John was written. It's a big part of why this letter was written, and I'll show you why I say that in a few minutes. But it, that problem that, the, and the hurt and the pain that came from it was a big reason John wrote this letter. Now, before we get into that, before I kind of take you into some of the, the basics here, or some of, some of the, the themes of the letter, uh, I'd like to just take a couple of minutes to acquaint you with the letter. And that's something I like to do. I always find it's helpful when we start a new series. And we are starting a new series this morning. We're starting in 1 John. Um, we're going to be here about 12 weeks if we stay on schedule. That's the goal. And I, I always think it's helpful to just know the book a little bit. You know, I mean, we won't do a lot of this, but I do think it's helpful. And so I wanted to use kind of the four classic, four of the, the six classic journalism words and just try to get to know John a little bit by asking who, when, where, and why. All right, let's try to get to know this, this letter uh, by asking those questions. Who, when, where, and why? And then we'll, we'll do some other things. So I start with the author. Uh, who wrote it, right? Who wrote First John? We asked you to turn to it. It's very late in your Bibles there, and you found it. Who wrote that book? Well, the answer is John, right? It was written by, uh, by John. Uh, I will tell you, the letter never says, says that. A lot of Paul's letters, he'll come right out and use his name. Uh, John uh, doesn't say, First John does not say it was written by John, but that's pretty much universally accepted. Nobody really disputes that it was written by a man named John. Uh, the real question, though, is which one, uh, which John wrote it, because John was actually a pretty common name in the first century, and uh, there are actually several of them even in Scripture. So, so which John are we talking about? And the answer here is uh, John the Apostle, John the son of Zebedee. Uh, that's who wrote the letter. Uh, there are some other suggestions that get made. I'm not going to bother us with some of the, those alternate ideas. I, I think the, the general uh, from oldest times has been that John the Apostle wrote the letter. Uh, John was one of the very first disciples of Jesus. He was one of the first ones Jesus said when he said to them when they were fishing, come follow me. Uh, John was one of the earliest ones. Uh, and so he knew Jesus personally. He was one of the 12. He knew Jesus personally, and he'd known him a long time. Uh, and so, and that, act, that detail is actually important. We'll come back to it in a little while. But John knew Jesus personally. Uh, he was also the last disciple to die. We know this both from Scripture and from, uh, but more, even more from church tradition. Uh, everybody else is dead. The, that, that first generation of disciples, uh, and, and the apostles specifically, uh, they've all gone on to heaven uh, by the time John is still alive. He actually lived well into his 90s. He lived until late in the first century. It's the general thought. He maybe was in his 80s, but he, uh, he was very old. That leads us to the, the, se uh, the second thought there, which is the date. Uh, when was first John written? And the answer here is that it was written in the early 90s. The early 90s for your benchmark, Jesus, we traditionally say, was crucified and, and ascended, resurrected, ascended into heaven uh, in 30 AD, plus or minus. And uh, so, so this letter's written almost, you know, about 60 years later. Uh, so very close to the end of John's life. He would have been a very old man when he wrote this. Uh, and uh, that also means this is one of the last books written in your New Testament. It's one of the reasons they put it last. It's one of the, you know, or so, so close to the end. Uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation, was probably written after this letter. Uh, we think 2nd and 3rd John were written right around the same time as this letter. 
they may have even been introductions for this letter. When this letter would come to somebody, the inter- there were introductory letters with it. We think Second and Third John might have been letters like that. Uh, but, but that's about it. Everything else in the Bible is already written by the time First John is written. Uh, where was it written to? Who are the recipients of the letter? That's the next question. And uh, before I answer that, the, the first thing I need to tell you about this letter is that it is what we call a general epistle. Right? So it's a general letter. And all that means is that it was written to a group of people, to a, um, not just to one church specifically, but to either a region of churches or to a whole bunch of people, just to everybody. Those are the general epistles. And so you have a book like Ephesians, which is written to the Christians in Ephesus or Philippians to the Christians in Philippi. Uh, but then you have these, those are specific. Those are not general epistles. Those are specific epistles. But then you have a book like Hebrews. If you look at Hebrews, it's pretty clear. Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians everywhere. It's kind of how it's, it's presented to us. Hebrews is a general epistle. And so is this. First John is a general epistle. It was probably written to, or we're pretty sure it was written to a, a, not just one church, but to a, a group of churches that were in a region together. And you say, which region is it? This is, uh, I think it's helpful to know. Uh, the, the best thought, and I think it's a good one, is that it was written to the same churches that John wrote Revelation to. And so if you look at the book of Revelation, or you're familiar with Revelation, you know that Revelation in uh, chapter 1, there's kind of this introductory vision, and then chapters 2 and 3 are addressed to seven specific churches. And you can find them on a map. They're all located in what we today call Turkey. It was Asia, the province of Asia at the time. Uh, but they're all located in western Turkey. And we think that First John is written to the same people. And it never says so in the letter, but those seem to have been kind of the, the churches John was responsible for. They were his people. And so we think the letter was written to, to the, the churches, at least the seven churches, maybe more than that in, uh, there in western Turkey. But the really interesting question is, is why? Right? What was the purpose of First John? What was, what was going on? You know, sometimes we get the idea that these letters are just written in a vacuum, but they're not. There was, there's always a reason behind the letter. So what was happening in those churches in western Turkey that the Holy Spirit moved John to write this letter at this time? And the answer is division between Christians, which is why I started with that. It's, uh, John writes this letter to encourage these folks in the aftermath of a, of a schism or a split. And, and there are these different hints in the letter that tell us this. Uh, he wrote to encourage them. They'd gone through some real pain, some difficulty from from division, and he writes the letter to help them get through it. I will say that's not the only reason, right? So it's not like we're going to talk about church splits for 12 weeks. That's not the point. It's not the only reason he writes the letter. Uh, There's several other threads we'll trace and look at as we go along. Uh, But in the big picture, this is an encouragement letter. A lot of times, I don't know about you, I always think of 1 John as this very theological letter. And it is very, uh, you know, there's a lot of good theology in here, but in the end it is a, it is pastoral. His heart is pastoral. He's writing to to help them. Let me show you why I say all this. Let me, let me show you why I I think that 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 is the right context for this letter. Um, Open your Bible, if you didn't, if it's not already, uh, to uh, that 1 John. And there's a, a couple of key verses in verse, it's verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2. So look at chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. This is where we see kind of what was going on, right? He talks to them about what they were facing. So verse 18, he says, uh, Children, it is the last hour, 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. Now, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to the Antichrists. We'll come back to the last hour, what he means. Uh, I promise. We'll come back to that when we, when we get to that passage in a few weeks. Keep reading, verse 19. So he's just said, many Antichrists have come. And he says, they, the Antichrists, uh, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. That's verse 19. He's not being metaphorical there. Right? I know we hear Antichrist and we think he's being prophetic and metaphorical and some of this stuff, and that is how the word is used, you know, in, in, for example, in Revelation. But here, he's describing something that really happened. This had just happened in their churches. There were believers, right? He says they were part of us. There were believers who were part of their churches and then left. They left, and, and I, I should stress, this isn't just um, kind of one church and they were fighting over the color of the carpet and so they split. This is a, a regional schism, there was some kind of false doctrine. We'll see as we dig into, the, into this book over the coming weeks, we can sort of begin to tease out what some of the issues were. We'll actually touch on some of them even today. Uh, but there was this kind of regional schism, and it had hurt. And here's the thing about this letter. John's not, this is not a letter where he's rebuking the people who left. This is a letter where he's addressing the people who stayed. And so the antichrists, the, the, the ones with the false doctrine, have left, and what he's addressing now are the people who are hurting, right? They've stayed, and they've gone through this trouble, they've gone through this pain, and he's writing this letter to help them. And that explains the introduction. And we are gonna, we're actually not going to go through systematically verses 1 through 4 this morning, although I will uh, walk us through them toward the end. But, but it explains verse 4. So the introduction to the letter is uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That is the introduction to the letter. It's not your typical letter introduction where he says who he's from and who he's writing it to, like Paul usually does. This is, a, like I say, it's a different sort of a thing, but it's very clear, especially from the end, that it's a letter. And in verse 4, he gives us a purpose statement for the letter. Right? So if we asked him, John, why are you writing this letter to us? He tells us in verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy... Some translations will have your joy, and either way, he's, he's wrapping them into it. Uh, we, are we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, he says. That, that's why he writes this letter. He wants these believers that he's writing to in this group of churches there in Western Asia, uh, Western, Western Turkey, he's writing to them so that they can have joy. He wants them to grow in their joy. In fact, I think there's a sense of restoring their joy. Because there isn't, it isn't that they weren't ever joyful and he's trying to introduce them to the concept of Christian joy. Given that context of division and hurt and pain, he's helping them restore what they've lost. And so the reason he writes this letter is to help them, is to help them uh, grow in their joy, to recover their joy. And, and like I say, you know, I said before, if I'd asked for a show of hands, many hands would go up. If you've ever experienced something like that, some kind of split or division, you know that it is painful. Right? It's, it's hard, it's confusing for the people who are left. You start wondering, what did we do wrong? Could, is there more we could have done to prevent it? Was it our fault? 
I will tell you, every time somebody leaves the church, I go through that. Every pastor does, right? Somebody leaves, they don't tell you, they just kind of disappear all of a sudden. You, you, you just, you can't help. It hurts. You process it. it, it it's, it's a difficult thing. And he's not just writing to the pastor of the churches. He's writing to that whole church to help them work through that. And he says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you uh, get your joy back. And here's how he's going to do it, all right? So that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. Here's the emphasis of this letter. The emphasis is on the basics. So how is he going to help them? They're hurting, they're confused, they're wondering, you know, what was, what was this weird thing they were teaching, and now they've left, and, and they've got all this stuff going on. What's John going to do to help them? Well, he's going to take them back to basics. And 1 John really is a, a basics kind of letter. I, I know, again, I know his language is very flowery, uh, and he's hard to follow sometimes. I personally find John a difficult book to study, uh, and, and it's because of the way he writes. But his message is real basic. It's actually very basic kind of stuff. And here's how I want to talk about it. Here's, what he, here's how he's going to help their joy. Real joy comes from getting the right things right. Right? It doesn't come from you know, any of these other kind of things people think the joy is going to come from. Real joy comes from getting the right things right. That's how he reassures and comforts and encourages these people. It's a back-to-basics kind of message. And so here's what I want to do in this introductory sermon. So this is an introduction to a, to a letter, and I, I think it's very helpful to understand the sweep of the whole letter. We could just jump in and start kind of interpreting as we go along, but I think we'll get more out of John at 1 John if we kind of understand the sweep of the book. And so what I'd like to do with the rest of my time is I'd like to show you three, what I think are the three major themes of this letter. And that's not to say that they're the only themes. There are other threads that we'll tease out as we go along. But these three are the big ones. And we'll, and again, because John kind of writes in a, a circular sort of way sometimes, we'll come back to them more than once, each one of these three themes. And, and so I just want to show them to you uh, because he, and I really want to stress that they're, they're essentials. He's going to present these things to us as essentials. They're not optional. They're not the kind of thing, well, you can have them, but you don't have to have them. They're things that we need. And that's how he's going to present them to us. So that's what I, I want to do with the rest of it. I want to talk about the, th the three things that this letter tells us we need to get right. These are the three right things that we need to get right. And uh, we'll come to that, the actual verses of uh, this morning's passage that Chad read for us. We'll come to those close to the end because they help us see the third thing we need to get right. But let's, let's start with the first one. So the, number one, the first thing we need to get right is that we need to have the right relationship with other believers. It's a big emphasis in this letter. We need to have the right relationship with each other, the right relationship with, with believers. What an encouragement that is to them as they're, all this, they're processing all this pain and this hardship of these others leaving. He says, let me bring me back to basics. And, and the basic is love. If, you wanna, if you're a note taker, but you don't like to take a lot of notes, just write down the word love because that, that summarizes the right relationship with believers. Real joy comes from being part of a loving community of believers. That is so much the emphasis of 1 John that it's probably what you thought of first. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that we were going to be studying 1 John in the first part of the new year. Uh, if, if you heard me say that and you kind of stopped to, to think about it, you might have had the thought, oh, we're going to talk about love. Because it's all over the place in First John, right? He talks all kinds of all, all the time about about love in uh, in First John, and and it's true. 
you were right if you had that thought, because it is a big theme in this letter. And so let me just show you a few, um, this is the kind of sermon where it would be useful to have your Bible open, uh, or you can just jot these down and look at them later. But uh, let me just tell you some of the verses. This is a sampling of some of what he says about uh, the right relationship with believers. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is not in the light, (laughs) right? Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there's no cause for stumbling. Or we get this in chapter three, verse 11. uh, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, right? This is what we've been telling you all along, John says, as he brings them back to the basics. Uh, John 3, 11, that we should love one another. A few verses later, he elaborates on that. Chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Oh, I like that part. I know God loves me because Jesus laid down his life for me. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So love isn't just God's love for us. It's our love for each other. He puts them right there together. And then in the very next verse, he makes it very clear. Love isn't just kind of an ooey-gooey emotion. Uh, Love is practical. And so you get this in chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Uh, Little children, let let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so love, we'll see in this book, is very practical. It's it's worked out. We're not talking about an emotion. There may be an, an affectionate component to it, but it's not primarily an emotion. He'll come back to it again in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 19. Uh, We love because he, talking about God, first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. So again, you can't not love and, and say you belong to God. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so you know, that, you know, each chapter, we, we, we end up talking about this. And the thing about it is none of it's optional. It's not optional. If we're followers of Jesus, we must build the right kind of relationships with our fellow believers, right? I mean, isn't that how he frames it? You, know, you think you love God, but you aren't able to, to love another person, to, 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 to show God's love to that person. You don't love God. You're a liar. Right? It, it's, it's not an option. It's, it's a necessity, as it's framed here. But here's the, here's the thing I want to stress. I, what I want to stress is that this is for our good. This is for our good. That's the connection to joy back in verse 4 of chapter 1. Uh, chapter 5, verse 3 uh, makes a wonderful little statement. Chapter 5, verse 3 says, God's commandments are not burdensome. God's commands are not burdensome, he says. And that includes all these commands in this book to to love one another the way Christ loves us. That's not meant to be a burden. It's actually meant to be a source of joy. Again, to go back to that that purpose statement of the book, God God gives this to to John uh, to, to give to us so that we can grow in joy. I'm writing these things, and he means the whole letter. I'm writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Uh, being involved in the, the, the rightly understood love relationship that there exists between believers, both giving and receiving, that's a big part of our experience of joy. That's how God has, has wired it together. And, and again, just let, you know, let's think about these folks in the, in the first century that he writes this letter to, the ones who had gone through that experience that's described in verse 19 of chapter 2. 
right? They, they would have been struggling. Right? We're not stretching here to, to just intuit that they would have been hurt. They would have been confused. Uh, they would have been missing specific people, right? If, you know, have you ever been part of something like that? You know, and you're like, yeah, that used to be my best friend. Now she goes to that church over there and they won't talk to me anymore. Right? They're missing specific people. There's probably leaders they thought they could trust. In fact, one of them is mentioned in first, uh, it's third John. I forget which verse, but a guy named uh, Diotrephes uh, is mentioned. And the fact that he's mentioned makes us think he was a leader. They used to trust Diotrephes, but now he's, he's turned on them. And so, and so that would have been a very hard thing. How are they going to get through all that? How are they going to get through it? Well, they're going to love each other through it. Right? They're going to help each other. They're going to comfort each other. They're going to bring God's love to bear on that difficulty that they're going to, and they're, they're going to help. And so there's a big message in this book. When things get hard, right, when things get hard in, the, in a community, whether it would be ours or if the Lord leads you elsewhere, you, know, you move or something like that, uh, when things get hard in the church, don't run away. Instead, double down. Right? Double down on your commitment to the church and love each other all the more. That's one of the messages of this book. And then, of course, the principle is going to apply much more broadly. Uh, it's not just about getting through the, the, that particular pain. Uh, what do we do when we, when we lose somebody? Right? When, we, when there's a death or there's some other kind of significant loss, when we're filled with sorrow, when there's some big disappointment in our lives, when, you know, when that spouse walks out or our kids turn on us or, or our parents turn on us, or, you know, how are we going to get through those kinds of hard things in our lives? I, mean, I guess you could turn to more Netflix, but, but it doesn't really work. It doesn't really work, not for long anyway. No, what we need is, is God's solution. Right? We need to love each other through it. We need a right relationship with other believers. That's where real joy is going to come from. It's one of the sources where it's going to come from. And that's one of the things he's going to talk to us about in this book. All right, number two, the, the, the second right thing we need to get right, according to 1 John, is that we need to have the right attitude towards sin. We need to have the right attitude. And by right attitude, we mean God's attitude Toward sin. And that's actually a big part of John. And, and it's not a contradiction to the first one. You say, wait, you know, this is the book that famously says God is love. And a lot of people have tried to use that to kind of say, oh, well, that God is love, therefore he doesn't care about sin. First, John is not going to let us get away with that. Uh, we, actually, one of the big messages of this book is that it is not possible. It is not possible to embrace Jesus and embrace sin at the same time. You can't do it. You've got to choose. It's one of the messages of this book. And John's going to jump right into this one. Actually, we'll look at this. We'll talk about sin next week because it's right there in verse... Uh, it's in next week's passage. So uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so what's he saying? He's saying, don't start saying there's no such thing as sin. And, and we live in a day that says that. We live in a day when churches say that. Right? There's no sin. Oh, you can do this, you can do that. There's, there's no sin. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. What should, we, what should we do with sin? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Don't, don't fool yourself about sin, John says. Sin is real. And, and the way to deal with it 
isn't to explain it away or excuse it away. The way to deal with it is to own it and confess it and turn away from it. Right? That's going to be one of the big messages. He's going to come back to the same point in chapter 2, uh, verse 4. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. Right? He, he doesn't pull any punches on these things, things does he? Uh, and, and the truth is not in him. Chapter 3, verse 6, uh, no one who abides in him, he's talking about Jesus, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Uh, little children, and we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that verse, it, it, the, this idea of practicing sin, keeping, persisting in sin. Uh, no one who persists in sin has either seen or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, but whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Very black and white there, right? Very black and white attitude towards sin. Uh, he comes back to it again in chapter 5. Uh, this time he's going to frame it in terms of obedience. Right? I don't think he uses the word sin in what I'm about to read you, but he talks about obedience. What is sin? Sin is disobedience to God. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Right, Jesus said it, if you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commandments. It's from, from the Gospels. And that's the right attitude about sin. We keep, uh, to love God is to keep God's commandments. And we'll see as we go along that this one is not optional either. Right? If, if we're followers of Jesus, then we must have this mindset about us. We must reject sin and obey God reject sin and choose, choose God's commands. That, that's what this letter is going to tell us. And what I, again, I want to stress this. This is also for our good. This is for our good. His commandments are not burdensome. God's attitude towards sin, the right attitude towards sin, is for our benefit. It's for our good. If I can connect it back to verse 4, it increases our joy. Right? If the purpose of this letter, or one of its stated purposes, is to help us grow in our joy, why talk so much about sin? I mean, come on, John, that's a downer. But no, having God's attitude about, about sin increases our joy. It does it in at least two ways I could think of. Uh, on the one hand, God's attitude towards sin increases our joy because sin leads to pain. It, it, it's bad for us. Sin hurts. Uh, disobeying God leads to shame. It leads to regret. It leads to grief. It leads to hurt. Uh, it leads to diseases, right? It leads to unplanned pregnancies. Sometimes uh, disobeying God gets us in trouble with the law, right? We end up in trouble legally. Uh, sin leads to addiction. It leads to financial debt. It leads to broken relationships and divorce and estrangement. It leads to, to, to families who, who won't talk to each other anymore. It, it's all sin, Right? And sometimes it's your sin, but many times it's other people's sin. But, but the point is, sin leads to pain. And so if we reject sin, then we're rejecting pain. Right? We, we, we're rejecting that short-term pleasure, which ties with it a whole bunch of pain. And when we reject sin, well, really what we're doing is we're increasing our joy. And so there's that sense. The other way God's attitude towards sin increases our joy is quite simply that God's way is better. And so it's not just that the devil's way is worse, it's that God's way is better. Right? His is the way to life. That's actually another thread. Uh, I, I, I won't argue it's one of the main themes, but it's a thread that's going to run through this letter several times, including in the passage we, we started with. Uh, he talks about life and eternal life, and we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. God's way is the way to life. 
And he's not promising there. He's not saying that our lives will be perfect because we walk with Jesus. That's not what the Bible ever says. Nothing this side of heaven is perfect. Uh, Jesus himself warned us, in this world you will have many troubles. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus never said we wouldn't have troubles in this world. But then if you keep reading that verse, he says, but take heart, take courage. I've overcome the world. I've overcome this place filled with trouble. And so if we, if we think about that, uh, what he's saying is that if we follow him and we walk in his path rather than in the world's path, that path, his path, is the path to maximum joy. Right? So if you want to maximize your joy, follow Jesus. That, that's what the Bible holds out for us. If we want our joy to be complete, chapter 1, verse 4, then have the right relationship with believers and have the right attitude towards sin. Uh, number three, finally, uh, the, the third thing we need to get right uh, is that we need to have the right beliefs about Jesus. We need to have the right beliefs about Jesus. Uh, our doctrine of the Savior, all right, our doctrine of the Savior needs to be sound. It needs to be true. And this actually, we'll see as we go along, this is especially where the, the people who had left, the ones who had split away. This was really where they went wrong and the other things, the other problems flowed out of this. But it was, it was their doctrine of Jesus. That's where they were getting messed up. And so he's going to spend a lot of time in this letter drilling down and, and hammering home the basics about what we need to believe about Jesus Christ. He talks about it in several places. And uh, I'm actually not going to take you through all of them this time, or several of them this time. I just want to show you one other one, and then we'll come back to, to the, the introduction. Chapter 2 is a good one, uh, just to show you what I mean about this importance of Christology. Uh, chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Who is the liar? There's that word again. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Right? This is the Antichrist. So clearly that was going on with this group that left. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. What's he saying there? He's saying you've got to believe the right stuff about Jesus. You've got to believe what's true. Because if you don't, you're, you're not a Christian, he says. He actually uses this term, Antichrists. He's not talking about the capital A Antichrist we talk about when we start talking about end time stuff. He's just talking about people who have rejected Jesus. Right? And so if you're not... If you don't have your, I'm going to use the term Christology, your doctrine of Jesus, if you don't have your, your doctrine of Jesus lined up right, you, you may kind of check the box Christian on the census, but you're not a Christian. You're, you're an anti-Christian, he says. There are a few other passages like that. We'll see them as we study through the book. Uh, but for time's sake, let's just focus on the introduction now. Let's, let's look at those verses. I do want to make sure I cover them. Uh, verses 1 through 4. Uh, this is, the, as I said before, the, the introduction to the letter. And John begins with this third theme, right? He, this is the one he starts with. He starts with, I said it before, Christology. It's just the technical term for what we believe about Jesus. Christology just means your beliefs about Jesus. And so you say, how important is the letter of Christology in this letter, uh, the issue of Christology? It's so important he starts the book with it, right? It's how he begins the letter. And in particular, he tells us two very basic things about Jesus. They're not the only things he's going to say about Jesus, but, but they're two very basic things he tells us about the person and nature of Jesus. And uh, you've got to get them both right, right? It's not kind of pick one. It, both of these are essentially 
are, are essential and true. And uh, here, here's what they are. I don't have them on a slide or anything. Two things he tells us. First, he tells us that we must know that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. And he establishes this from the opening words of the book, right? He's going to establish the, the, the full divinity of Jesus Christ. And the way he does this, it's very elegant the way he does it, is that he reaches back to his own work. He reaches back to the Gospel of John, and he echoes the same themes. See, John, I told you before that this letter was written in the early 90s A.D., uh, John, the Gospel of John, was written less, well, about 10 years before that, 10 years or less. We usually peg it to 80 to 85 AD is when John was written. And he opens purposely this letter to echo what he says in the first verse of the Gospel of John. All right, so the Gospel of John, and you could turn to it or not, it's fine, but the Gospel of John opens this way In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Right? That's this powerful statement he begins the Gospel of John with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The first three verses of this little letter we're studying follow the same pattern. He grabs all four parts of that verse. So he starts out, how does he begin this one? In the beginning. Right? That which was from the beginning, First John says. What does the Gospel say? In the beginning, John 1.1. 1, 1. And both of those statements, neither one, they're not in a vacuum. Both of those statements take us all the way back, right? All the way back to the beginning. To the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. How does that start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what does John want us to think as this letter begins? He wants us to see that the one he's talking about, the person he's going to talk to us about in this letter, is the one who was there at the beginning. So, we haven't even got a full sentence yet, and he's already telling us we're talking here about God. Then, at the end of verse 1, he brings in the Word. So who was there from the beginning, John? Who was there from the beginning? He says it was the Word of life. The Word of life. I'm, I'm going to talk to you. This letter is concerning the Word of life, he says. Uh, or, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. Right? Do you see how he's echoing his themes from the Gospel? And the deity of Jesus is, is such a key issue in the Gospel of John. And, and actually, it's even just in the introduction. If you, uh, we won't take the time this morning, but if you look at John the Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, he very carefully goes through and establishes for us that Jesus is the Word and the Word is God. Right? It's just one of the big things he's, he's doing in the introduction to the Gospel of John. And so he's wrapping that in here. Who was, who was there at the beginning? It was the word of life. Now skip down to verse 2. Here's, uh, here's where we see the third piece from, uh, from that verse. He says, We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. So now what's he going to tell us about the word? Uh, the, the, the word was with the Father. Or John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And then he's not done yet. He's going to elaborate one more time. He's going to, you know, crank the ratchet one more time in terms of what he's claiming about Jesus. We have, verse 3, we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the first time we get the name Jesus in this letter. Now here's how we know who he's talking about here in the introduction. And what he says about him is that he's God. And so Jesus is the Word, he's established that, and Jesus is God's Son. 
Or to go back to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's, he's intentionally echoing here in his letter what he wrote in the Gospel. And so in, from the opening lines, do you see, he, he, he stakes this out. Make no mistake about it. All right? He's not going to back down from this. It doesn't matter what the schism people were saying. Jesus is not just a good man. He's not just a moral teacher. He wasn't, it didn't, isn't that he seemed like he was God and then he wasn't. Uh, Jesus is fully God. He establishes that for us at the very beginning. But here's the other part he established for us. Jesus is also fully human. He's fully, and we talk about it at Christmas time. I'm sure I used the phrase at some point talking about the incarnation. Jesus is fully God and fully man. This is, this is one of those passages we get that kind of phrasing from because we see it. He emphasizes here in the first three verses that not only is Jesus fully God, but Jesus is fully man. And he actually goes out of his way to emphasize this one. This is the one that actually I think stands out more here in the introduction. And this is where it's important that he knows Jesus personally. Remember I said John knew Jesus personally. Because what he does is he says, look at what he does. He brings in three of the five senses. He says, we saw him. Four different times there in verses one through three. We saw him. The we he's talking about is his fellow apostles. That was actually one of the criteria to be an apostle. You had been with Jesus in person. And so he says, we saw him with our eyes. We looked upon him. Both of those are in verse 1. He talks about the manifestation, which means the physical appearance. Uh, we have seen it, the, the manifestation. That's verse 2. And then verse 3, that which we have seen. Four times he uses a Greek word that means to see with your eyes. And not only that, we heard him too. And twice he says that. Two times he says we heard him. He says it in verse 1. He says it again in verse 3. We heard his voice, John says. We heard his teaching. And if that doesn't convince you, we touched him. That's verse 1. Uh, that which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, he says. Right? We've, we've touched him. I, I wonder if he's, you know, if you just think, I mean, he was there... His, they were his disciples. They traveled with him. They sat in the boat with him. They ate meals with him. Surely they touched him sometimes, right? Clap on the back or, you know, hand him some bread, all these different, they, they touched him. But I really wonder if he, what he isn't invoking even more is after the resurrection, right? Do you remember? And it's in the gospel of John. Uh, Jesus appears to the, to the, uh, to the 10 because Thomas isn't there and Judas is gone. He appears to the 10 and then he, he, and he actually, you know, he lets them see him. And then Thomas comes along. Thomas says, I don't believe it. I'm going to I'm gonna have to touch him, he says. I'm going to have to see him with my own eyes and touch him before I'm going to believe it. So Jesus comes back seven days later and he says, here I am, Thomas. Touch me. Here's, here's my side. Place your hand in my side, he says to Thomas. And I wonder if John isn't in, invoking that when he says, we touched him. We can verify for you that he was alive he died, and he rose again. We touched him. And he says all that, and he says, and now we proclaim it to you. Like Paul said earlier, it's a, it's a theme in this letter. It's, you'll, you'll see it several times. Now what we have seen and heard, now we are eyewitnesses proclaiming it to you, he says. And what is he, what is he affirming? He's affirming that Jesus is fully God, and he says, I can affirm for you he was fully human. 
you'll see this is actually one of the things that, that, that was being disputed. And it's a very important doctrine. You and I aren't saved if Jesus wasn't fully human. And so it's very important that he establishes this. Yes, he's fully God and fully human. And, and we do have to get the, and, and that, like I said a moment ago, uh, we are not saved if it's not true. We have to get this one right, which is it's why John is going to emphasize our, our doctrine of Jesus, believing the right things about Jesus so much in this letter. But here's the other thing. It's not just about having sound doctrine. It's about, it's about verse 4. It's about growing in joy, right? Because this is what is going to lead to joy. Truth leads to joy. If we don't believe the right things about Jesus, we're not following Jesus. I mean, think about it, right? If you, if you kind of do what a lot of people are tempted to do these days, and well, what am I saying? They were doing it in the first century too. If, if we give in to the temptation to kind of construct a Jesus of our own desiring, right? And so a Jesus who maybe affirms our sin or a Jesus who lets everybody into heaven and doesn't, you know, doesn't require faith, whatever, right? Whatever. If, if we construct a Jesus that matches what we want rather than what the Bible says, that's not the real Jesus, it's just a pretend Jesus, right? It's just a pretend Jesus. And a pretend Jesus isn't a good option, not if we're going to grow in genuine joy, right? Because pretend Jesus doesn't exist. He's a construct of people's minds and hearts. Pretend Jesus doesn't exist, and so pretend Jesus can't give real joy. Only the real Jesus we meet in the Bible is able to give us real joy. We're in the second week of January. It's January 9th. And I was thinking about Christmas. Right? Christmas is over. I actually was at the gym yesterday and I overheard somebody say, or maybe it was Friday, I heard somebody kind of like, yeah, I'm so depressed. I haven't taken my tree down yet. I don't want to. I don't want to give it up. And a lot of us feel that way, right? A lot of us, are, you know, it's hard to say goodbye to that. Not least of all because of, of uh, joy. Right? I mean, you think about it. We don't talk about joy very much as a culture outside of Christmas, right? I mean, at Christmas time, we sing songs about it, and you go to the store, and there's banners that say joy, and I mean, joy is everywhere for about four weeks, and then it just disappears. But it doesn't have to be that way for us. It really doesn't. In fact, it's not supposed to be that way for us. We may not sing joy to the world for another 11 months, but we still have joy. We very much have joy. And it's not just a little bit of joy. It's, it's complete joy, which is what God wants us to have. And, and he wants us to give it. He wants to give that to us. And so we'll be talking about that. We won't hammer it every single week, but it's a theme that will run through this letter. He wants our joy to be complete. And the way to get there is to, do, is, is to do the right things right, to get the right things right. Let's pray. Lord, we want to grow in joy, in uh, your kind of joy, not uh, circumstantial joy or materialistic joy, or uh, seasonal joy, uh, but in genuine, uh, complete, biblical, Christ-founded, God-honoring joy. And so I would just ask that you would be forming that in us as a church and as families and as individuals and households, be forming that in us through our time in the Word uh, these next few, few weeks as we're studying First John together in our times in worship and prayer. Would you please be doing that for us uh, for your name's sake, for your glory. And we ask it uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.